your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, we are continuing our, our study through our favorite subject of any passage of the Bible, and that, of course, is a genealogy. But our goal is to see uh, who are these people who find themselves as the ancestors of Jesus. We might expect them to be uh, perfect people, uh, heroes. But what we find is, although many of them are heroic, many of them are righteous, uh, we, we are surprised to find not just who we find, but how Matthew lays out uh, the, the genealogy of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 1, you'll find it on page 849 of your pew Bibles. And if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. We want to start in verse 6. We'll go down to verse 11. Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, or Asa is what your translation will say, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerom, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you would give us understanding of your words to open our eyes, our ears, our mind, our hearts, our mouths, our hands, our feet, that we would be transformed by the gospel of Jesus as a result of your word. So help us this morning as we see the corruption of these kings, that we may see that Jesus really is a true and better king. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In May of last year, which was, I think, about 15 years ago, um, a, a major news story broke. had nothing to do with China or pandemics or anything like that, but it was still very major. The story was released, I think it was Wall Street Journal or, or one of those major newspapers, that um, documents had uncovered that one of the greatest Americans of the 20th century was unfaithful to his wife. His name was Martin Luther King, Jr., and the story goes on about how, how Dr. King had, 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 had been unfaithful. And, and what was striking about that as I was reading through this expose of this uh, historic giant was, was the fact that though this was found in a newspaper, this wasn't news. Any historian will tell you that, 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 that it has been well established that Dr. King, for all the good that he did and did some fantastic things, his private life was not ideal. In fact, it was so severe when he was under FBI surveillance, which is a problem in and of itself. Uh, it was uncovered and, and video or uh, uh, audio tapes were, were, were recorded so bad that they have been locked up by the federal government only to be released, I believe, in 2027. Much in the same way that after Kennedy's death, things were locked up for about 50 years. One of the great ironies of history is that in June the 22nd, 1963, months prior to Kennedy's death, Martin Luther King Jr. And, and President John F. Kennedy met for the first time. They gathered together at the White House, and Kennedy was, was giving him a tour at the White House, the Oval Office, Lincoln Bedroom, and everything. And, and, and the reason for them gathering was for the two men to meet to see if this was a, 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 a uh, if the two could, could move forward with civil rights, because by the pushing of Bobby Kennedy, John Kennedy was getting behind legislation that was promoted by Dr. King and others in the civil rights movement. 
And in that scene, in, I believe it was in the Oval Office, we, we see Kennedy, President Kennedy, lecturing Dr. King about his unfaithfulness. He warned Dr. King that if, 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 if you are unfaithful and this gets out, it will ruin everything we do about civil rights. And of course, he's right. The irony, of course, is Kennedy was just as unfaithful, just as much of a serial adulterer as Dr. King. And in this moment, we have two iconic figures of the 20th century. Kennedy's one of my favorite presidents of the 20th century. And yet, behind the scenes, away from the cameras, what we see are two men, as great as they were, deeply, deeply flawed. Let's be honest. A similar vignette could be offered for virtually every influential leader and personal hero you and I may have. Whether we think of public figures or, or people we may know in our own lives, corruption consumes all of our hearts. And what we see in, in this portion of the genealogy is that we've moved from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, and all them, to, into the conquest, right? And so we saw Boaz and Ruth and Rahab and, and, and Obed and all them. Well, now we move into the age of monarchy. And after generations of flawed and corrupt judges following the generation of Joshua and others, the nation demands that they be led like all the other nations. They be led by a king. And despite the prophet Samuel's warning about what big government would mean, the people democratically choose for themselves to be a monarchy. Now, Israel, we should say, just, just in, as a, in a general sense, and when I say Israel in this context, I really mean Israel and then later Judah. They essentially had two dynasties. And the first you can't really call a dynasty. It started with Saul and it ended with Saul. And if you don't know his story, it's because you, you weren't here earlier this <laughs> summer and fall. But then there is the dynasty of David. And this dynasty started with a young man who, who went from being a shepherd to a king. And it concludes technically with Zedekiah. Um, now, it's, it's, we're being technical there. Zedekiah is not a direct descendant of Judah. He would be uh, like, like a nephew. But nevertheless, uh, we won't have time to explore that story in any, any detail. And what we need to see in the dynasty of David, many of whom you'll find in this list that we just read earlier, is that many of these kings were righteous. Think of Uzziah. You can think of David. You think of Hezekiah. You can think of many others. But the reality is most were corrupt. All of them were sinners. And for the sake of time, we, 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 we only want to look at a few of these. I, I worked my way through all of them. I feel like I can tell you everything there is to know about all these kings, and hardly any of it's good, right? You, you work it all the way through. But I just want to highlight about a handful for you. Let's start with the evil kings. Let's start with the bad guys, okay? Because when you talk about the bad things, they make the good guys look better, right? That's, that's the way I live my life. And you know, remember, I've told you, told you what I say to my wife all the time. Honey, you could always have it better, but let's go to Walmart in the middle of the night so you know you could always have it worse, right? Or I could take her back to Carroll County and uh, speak for itself. Let's talk about the evil kings here. Let's talk about Rehoboam. Rehoboam, uh, you say that two times. Um, he inherited, we should say, as the son of Solomon, all of his father's foolishness and none of his wisdom. He was a foolish king. Solomon was wise who flirted with great foolishness, but by the end repented. Rehoboam was just a fool. 
In fact, we see Solomon worried about this, it seems, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says, I hated all the toil in, in which I toiled on the son, saying that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. That is his son. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used under wisdom on this son. This also is vanity. And of course, it turned out to be quite vain. Solomon had extended the borders. He had built the temple. He, he had united many of the nations and people were gathering to Israel. They really, the, the peak of, of Israeli influence in the ancient world. And what happens? His son takes over and it all collapses. Let me give you three areas where this shows up. The first is division. Solomon is the last of the kings of the United Kingdom. And then we see that there's tension between north and south going all the way back to David. We talked about that a few weeks ago in our study of David, that David first becomes king of Judah before he's king of all of Israel. But nevertheless, the first three kings at least kept everyone together. But Rehoboam, at his coronation, he's not even king for a day. And people come up and say, look, the tax burdens on us are, uh, are intense. We've been waving flags to say, don't tread on me. We, and and we, we just want lower taxes. And what, and what does Rehoboam do? He doesn't listen to the, the wise uh, counselors. He listens to the foolish young counselors. And what does he do? He makes the tax burdens even worse, causing them to split. And Israel has never been united since. Secondly, He's involved in idolatry. He really is the first major king to introduce this. First Kings 14, it says, They also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every hill, uh, high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He introduced idolatry on a new level. The others may have flirted with it. The others may have tolerated to a certain extent, but it was he who promoted it. Not only did, was he a divisive king and an idolatrous king, but he, he was constantly in war. Rehoboam fought Shishak, king of Egypt, who robbed the temple and the king's palace, so much so that it says he took away everything. His father had put all the stuff in the palace, all the stuff in the temple. His grandfather had prepared all of that for Solomon. And within his reign alone, much of it is taken by the Egyptians. Striking, isn't it? That it remember, it was the Israelites who took all the Egyptian gold on the way out of Egypt. Later, it is the Egyptians who take all the uh, Jewish possessions on the way back to Egypt. We should also know that after the split, you have Israel in the north, Judah in the south, Rehoboam is king of the south. The two nations, Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the north, um, are constantly at war with one another. And that is the first king after Solomon. He was a fool. He was an evil man. It isn't just Rehoboam. We can also skip down and look at Ahaz there in verse 9. He was one of the eviler kings of Judah. He ignored the word of God's prophets and sided with the Syrian king Tikalath Peleser II in order to protect Judah from Syria and Israel. So his thinking is we can't take Syria and Israel by ourselves. What we need to do is to get the big dog in the fight. We, 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 we got to get the seven foot two, uh, 300 pound, all muscle, no fat center forward, right? We got to get him in the fight, right? And what happens is by doing that, it resulted in essentially Ahaz, the evil king, not listening to the prophets, but listening to, to, the, to, to the pundits. And, and thus he essentially surrendered autonomy to the Assyrian domination. In fact, it got so bad, he allowed the Syrians, whom he was at war with, 
to put an altar in the temple itself. Well, it's supposed to be the presence of God, subject to, to, to God alone, Yahweh alone. He allows false idols to come in, thus false worship, to desecrate the temple. He was so evil that his people didn't bury him in the royal tomb. Let me tell you, there are a lot of bad guys who got buried among those tombs. He wasn't one of them, is how bad he was. Or we can look at Manasseh. You can see him down in verse 10. Again, we're doing a lot of skipping. He is the longest reigning king of Judah, yet he was evil. He was arguably the most evil of all the kings of Judah. Not only did he promote idolatry and undo his father and grandfather's religious reforms, but he even offered his own son as a sacrifice as well as turning to witchcraft. In many ways, he is not only pagan, but we see reminiscences of, of all the other evil kings, from, from Saul turning to necromancy to, to others, things that he would do. So much so that in 2 Kings 21, it says, Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Notice what he's saying there. He said, you thought Jericho was bad. You thought all the Canaanites were bad. When the people of Israel came in, you remember how they're described? Manasseh. And the people he led, the nation of Israel, God's promised people, were much worse. Well, that's the bad guys. Let's look at some good guys, right? It's Christmas. We were supposed to be happy, right? Let's look at these good guys. Let's start with, with the big dog, David. We've already studied the rise of David to the throne of Israel, the capital of Israel, or, 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 and, 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 and all that happens, but... but Let's look at a few of his triumphs as briefly as we can. He, he took over Jerusalem and established as his capital. That's significant in 2 Samuel 2. He, he returned the Ark of the Covenant that had been taken by the Philistines. Uh, he made an everlasting covenant. God made an everlasting covenant with David uh, that, that will culminate in the Messiah. Uh, he defeated the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Syrians, establishing lasting peace, which means later when you see uh, uh, like Ahaz fighting the Syrians, that was an ally, or, or at least a neutral ally, with under David's reign. So through these bad kings, all, all this lasting peace is lost. And finally, he organized the construction of the temple. Couldn't build the temple himself, the Lord wouldn't allow it, but he certainly made the job a lot easier on Solomon. All he had to do was hire the, the construction workers and say, do everything my dad tells you to do, right? <laughs> you know, and that's all Solomon had to do. So certainly David had his triumphs, and he's considered the greatest of all the kings of Israel. But he certainly had his tragedies. Most infamous is, of course, the act of adultery with another man's wife and the murder of that man whose wife he had taken. We could also look at the assault against Dinah, his daughter, by her half-brother, Ammon, who was then killed by Dinah's full-blooded brother. Are you lost yet? Okay, so David has too many wives. Should be a joke there. He had too many wives, okay? And, and so he had a lot of half-siblings in that family. Dinah was assaulted by her half-brother. And when Dinah's Ammon, when her full-blooded brother, Absalom, discovered, he went and killed his half-brother who assaulted his full-blooded sister. Are you still lost? And then he responded... By rebelling against his father, Absalom does. So much so he pushes his own father, King David, out of the capital city. The king is on the run. And it looks as if Absalom, the son of David, is now the new king by force. And eventually there is civil war within the same dynasty 
that leads to the death of Absalom. David may have been a good king, but he was not a good husband and father. And as a result, we see the unraveling of his kingdom at the end of his life. So much so, he has to beg his heir, Solomon, to pick up the pieces. Speaking of Solomon, you see him again in verse 6. And you see how Solomon is, is introduced there. It is worth noteworthy. Notice that David was the father of Solomon by the wife Uriah. Remember we said last week there are five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, the fifth being Mary. And almost all of them have, have, have commonalities. Most of them are Gentiles other than Mary. Uh, Uriah's wife Bathsheba is probably a Hittite. Uriah was a Hittite. And we see that most of these have, there, there's some context of, of how they conceived a child or the nature of the birth or something like that. And, and we see that Solomon is not just the son of David, but he's the son of David by another man's wife. And so Matthew wants the reader to remember that as good as Solomon was, he did a lot of great things. He built the temple. He composed thousands of proverbs and songs used in worship, still being used in worship. He established trade deals that enriched Israel. He established diplomatic relations with Egypt and Moab and Edom and Tyre and others. He built a formidable army. He did a lot of great things. But remember, the son of Uriah's wife, also lived a life of many tragedies. In many ways, he's too much like his father. Let's mention some of those tragedies, if you will. One is obvious, and that is lust. Much of Solomon's diplomatic success, and there was much diplomatic success, was tied to multiple marriages. The Solomon's, Solomon's uh, is his, his, his kingdom was saturated with wives and concubines. And so his lust became all-consuming and led to his downfall. So not only was it lust, we should also see that it was adult, uh, idolatry was a problem in his kingdom. And the two were related. As he marries uh, uh, princesses from other nations, those princesses don't become Jewish worshipers. Rather, they bring with them their false idolatry. The worship of false gods. The nations are coming into the kingdom of Israel. And, and so that is how it easily snuck into the kingdom of Solomon. And so he is eventually seduced to tolerate and even to introduce idolatry to, to, to Israel. So yes, it is Rehoboam that, that really promotes it. But it is his father, who's supposed to be the wisest man to ever live. Who introduces his son to all this. So we see in 1 Kings 11, you really should read more than just the three verses I have up here. Actually, two. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And then it goes to detail who these idols were and what it did to him spiritually. We can almost argue that Solomon was, was both the wisest of kings and among the most foolish of kings. Surely a man with his wisdom would know better than this, which is what we see in Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Finally, let's look at Asaph. Your ESV says Asaph. There's reasons for that. I'm going to post some stuff on the church blog, uh, hopefully this week, where I'll go in more detail. Why does the Greek say Asaph instead of Asa? Asaph, of course, wrote several psalms, but we don't have time to get into all that. The same thing happens later on in, in the genealogy. But Asa was a righteous king who ruled for 40 years, had a great reign. He had many triumphs. He reformed worship. That is, he removed all the idols from Judah. 
this was not only places of worship, but objects of worship, if I can use that term. So we see in 1 Kings 15, he put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. Notice, fathers, not just his father. This, this was a systemic problem. Asa put an end to it. Not only that, but he reformed his court. And by that, I mean, he kicked his own mother out of being queen. Now, I, I don't know much about politics or being a king, but that, that's got to be harder than tearing down the idols, right? He, he, he kicks his own mother out because, quote, because she had made an abominable image for Asherah, and Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook of the Kidron. It's First Kings 15, 13. But although he did many great things for four decades, there was corruption there too. First of all, his reform, his religious reforms were incomplete. He did destroy the altars or remove cult leaders, but it remained incomplete. First Kings 15, 14 says, but the high places were not taken away. See, the reason you have high places where you go essentially to the top of mountains or large hills is because it was believed that's where the gods dwelt. So if you want to reach the gods, you got to go where they are. And so you would have these high places, these houses of worship up high, and he didn't remove them. And so, so long as they were there, the people could believe the gods were still with them. He refused a complete reform. Furthermore, he relied on his own wisdom more than on Yahweh. In 2 Chronicles 16, the prophet Hanani rebukes Asa for trusting in Syria to protect Judah more than he trusted in Yahweh. Hezekiah will deal with this. We don't have time to get into Hezekiah. Hezekiah trusted Isaiah's word and protected Israel or, or Judah from, from uh, uh, the Assyrians, I believe it was. Well, Asa does the opposite. He doesn't trust the words of the prophet. Instead, trusts the Syrians, the pagan nation. Even more, at the end of his life, he dies because of a disease. And the reason is clear. It is because of his pride and because he did not trust in the word of Yahweh. So he dies not as a triumphant, righteous king, but he dies in his sin. Now, we've looked at six of these kings, and there's like a dozen more. Just, it, it took me forever just to go through all these, reading through most of the historical books of the Old Testament. But you see a pattern here, right? Whether we're looking at the ones that the Bible is very clear, these guys are evil. Or whether we're looking at the ones that say, yes, there is righteousness there, but don't overlook the fact there is much corruption. Even in leadership, there is much corruption. So then, what are we to make of this? Why would Matthew go out of his way to give us this list of kings? He does some skipping, not much, but why this list of kings? Can I offer three areas of application as brief as we can? The first is... We should stop confusing politics with salvation. It is increasingly clear to me that for most American evangelicals, our hope too often lies in the White House more than it does in the cross. What is the temptation of the monarchy? Why is it that Samuel doesn't want them to go down this path? It's because the temptation is there is always someone I can elect who will save me who will make me rich, who will give me happiness, who will secure peace. There's always someone. If I don't like this guy, I will get the next one. So what we have among the kings is corruption. What we have is faith in this guy and that guy. We have murders and mayhem. We have increased taxes, decreased taxes, talk of justice, talk of war, talk of civil strife. We have all of this. Why? Because the people begin to believe, if only we got the right guy in charge, if only we go down this path, then I will pursue and find happiness. 
whether our chief executive is Nero or Moses or David or Manasseh, no souls will ever be saved through legislation or an election. Think about it. How many converts to your political position have you won over because of some meme you posted on Facebook? Any? Any? Bueller? Bueller? No. Imagine if American evangelicals spent as much time promoting the cross and the hope we have in salvation as we do in trying to get other people to vote for our guy, knowing they ain't gonna. Because they're online doing the same thing. Trying to get you to vote for their guy. So we're caught in this civil strife. And it's only going to get worse because as worship of God decreases in the nation, the worship of government will increase in our nation. Let it not be that the people of God fall for that seduction. For the cross is sufficient for all of our needs. That leads secondly that character really matters in leadership. Too many Christians, I fear, have surrendered moral conviction for political influence and power. Christians can either be a people of character or we can be a people of power. Let it be that if America falls, we do not bring shame upon the cross. This, of course, is true beyond just political leadership, of course. Good leadership requires godly courage, godly conviction, and godly character. And many of the men who rule and reigned in Judah possessed a lot of power. They could have done anything they wanted with that power. The problem is that they lacked the fortitude to lead with righteousness. Let me tell you, church, let us focus on the righteous part of it. Let us focus on the character part of it. Let us focus on being a people of holiness. And may we, among our number, raise leaders. Leaders for our church leaders for our community, leaders for our commonwealth, leaders for our country. Whether it be in the office, in the home, or in governments, may we never surrender character for position of influence. Finally, the real point of this passage, I believe, and the real reason Matthew includes this in here, is simply because Jesus is the true and better king. Have you noticed a pattern here? He's a true and better Abraham, true and better Isaac and Jacob and Judah, true and better Boaz and, and Ruth and, and, and Rahab. He's true and better king. He has to be, doesn't he? He has to be. Otherwise, what hope would we have? In fact, I would argue, and I've done this before, so this may be, be, be familiar territory. I would argue that the main point of Matthew is to present Jesus as the true and better king of Israel. Can I give you a brief survey of Matthew? We'll be done by three o'clock. <laughs> well, notice the very first verse of, of the whole book. Notice how he introduces the genealogy itself. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What is two things he wants you to know? He wants you to know the birth of the king here. Jesus is the son of Abraham, thus he's Jewish. But you need to know the eternal covenant made with David, Jesus is the fulfillment of it. He is king and his reign will rule forever and ever in heaven and over the earth. 
He is the fulfillment of it. He is a true and better David. This is a true and better king. But maybe you still don't believe me in the birth of the king. You go over the chapter 2 of Matthew. You can do it if you want. We won't read any of it. A, a bunch of uh, 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 guys, probably more than three or two if you're watching the video, they show up and they bring presents to Jesus. Who are those guys? The Magi. That goes back to the book of Daniel. We call them wise men, which is sort of like state workers, right? It's, it's you know, those words don't usually belong together. But... I'm going to let that joke just sort of simmer there. You ladies can laugh at the wise men joke and the rest of you can laugh at the state workers joke. Okay. But you'll notice there, what is their job? They are looking for the king. Why? Because what magi do is they crown kings and they're looking for the king. And they come to a king of Israel and they realize you ain't it. Then you come bearing gifts to Herod. They come bearing gifts to Christ who is the king of Israel. And they come bringing gifts. What sort of gifts? Not the ones we saw earlier that are for the sake of a pandemic, but real gifts that are for a king. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. But it isn't just in the birth of a king. We see the preparations for the king in verses three through four. What is the message of John the Baptist? Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus will say it in chapter four, the same thing. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I, I don't know much about monarchies, but I'm guessing if there's a kingdom, there should be a king, right? And John is saying, look, the king is coming. Jesus is saying the king has arrived. And what is his temptation? The temptation of Satan is, here's all the kingdom of the earth if you will fall down and worship me. But what does Jesus say? I am already the king of all the nations of the earth. Amen. And then we get chapters 5 to 7 and put it up there. But it's, it's, it's the Sermon on the Mount. This is the law of the king. We can then look at uh, chapters 8 through 12. We see the authority in the Sermon on the Mount, how they respond. The authority of the king. Chapters 8 through 12, we see him healing. Uh, he has authority over sickness. We see miracles, authority over the earth. And so much so that chapter 8, verse 27, the disciples ask, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Kings are used to people obeying them. They don't have nature obeying them. But Jesus does. He's Lord. He's king over nature itself. The exorcism demonstrates he has authority over evil. So much so in chapter 8, verse 29, it says, What have you to do with us, Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Notice that the question of the disciples regarding nature is the same question of the demons regarding the supernatural world. Who is this man? Matthew wants you to know that he is king. Then there is, of course, the parables of the kingdom. Kingdom of God is like a man who sowed good seed. Kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Kingdom of God is like leaven. Kingdom of God is like treasure in the field. The kingdom of God is like priceless pearls. The kingdom of God is like a net full of various fish. Notice here, Jesus is not describing the kingdom as a citizen of that kingdom, but as its king. Then we can skip to, to the arrival of the king in chapter 21. This is the triumphal entry. In chapter 21, verse 5, it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. Your king has come. And what does he do? He exercises authority over the, not just the political establishment, but the religious establishment by cleansing the temple. Why? Because this is my father's house. It ain't your father's house. This is my father's house. And it will be cleansed. He reforms worship as the kings of Judah did. Chapters 24 and 25, we get the return of the king. Chapter 25, verse 34 says, And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He judges as king. He returns as king. But then in chapter 26, 27, the big surprise is the death of the king. 
One of the main reasons Jesus was mocked and crucified was it not because he claimed to be a king. Chapter 27, verse 29, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Chapter 27, verse 37, it said over his head, they put a charge against him. What was that charge? This is Jesus, what? The King of the Jews. He's the King of the Jews. And then we can look at chapter 28. Not only do we have, let me put it up here, not only do we have the king returns, the king is resurrected, but the king commissions his people. This is why he'll say, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm the king. Here's your job, church. Go and make disciples. Not go and collect votes. Not go and make a lot of money. Go and have large budgets in your local church. Go and fix that problem or that. No, no, no. No, you have one job, dear Christian. Go and make disciples. You can make disciples in your home. Make disciples in your church. Make disciples in your community. But go and make disciples. You teach them everything the king has told you. The good news. The king is with you always. To the end of the age. To the end of the world, to the end of the era, to the end of the day, the king is with you. See, the whole point of this section is so that you and I may see we already have a king. We don't need anything else. And regardless of what may happen in Frankfurt or D.C., what may happen in our home or in the office, Jesus is king. Jesus rules and reigns. Thus, why should I worry about anything? Why should I panic about anything? Why should I get worked up over anything? Is he not Lord over the cosmos? Is he not Lord over the church? Is he not Lord over your family? Is he not Lord over your children? Is he not Lord over your life? He is king. And he is risen from the dead. So, What we get with Christmas is essentially the birth of a king who still rules and reigns today. And that is why the angels proclaim good news of great joy. Let's pray.